Welcome to the first of Chris's Rambles. These are audio explorations of stories in the landscape on storyarchaeology.com. Today's ramble is called Mercator the Mapmaker and the Tour de Dolan. Some time ago, I was half watching a BBC documentary series called The Beauty of Maps. It was interesting, although maybe not gripping, until something caught my attention. The episode that was showing was entitled The Golden Age of the Atlas, and it featured a famous 16th century Flemish cartographer named Gerardus Mercator. Now, his name is probably very familiar to you because of a projection. Now, don't get the wrong idea. Think of a globe. When I was a child, I really wanted to own a globe, what I called a baller world. Well, a globe. But the problem is, if you want a big enough map to use for navigation, a sphere is an awkward shape. It doesn't fold very well, and spheres just don't stack. So, by the time Mercator published his epic world map in 1569, he'd solved the problem with his famous projection – This laid out the globe as a flattened version of a cylinder. Now, it worked great for navigation, and it's still used today. But later, once Australia was discovered, no one other than Australians has ever really got their head around just how huge Australia really is. And that's because of Mercator's projection. Mercator continued his cartography work for the rest of his life, publishing maps. And, oh yes, he was the first person to give a name to a book of maps. The Atlas. And it was one of Mercator's maps that had grabbed my attention. The presenter was showing a map of what Mercator believed the North Pole to look like. It was fascinating. There was a great mountain at the centre, surrounded by some kind of whirlpool, and from around this mountain flowed four great rivers, dividing four land masses. Each land was marked by distinguishing features or unusual inhabitants. One was home to a race of pygmies. Another was considered to be a mild and healthy land, while a third was laced with many tributaries and so on. I have included a link to a searchable version of this map on the webpage so that you can take a closer look yourselves. Now, Mercator was a man of science. He was making best use of what sources he had available. But the Arctic region was still very much terra incognita. Whether it was Robert Perry, Frederick Cook, or indeed Matthew Henson, nobody actually reached the pole until the first decade of the 20th century. Mercator, in the late 16th century, was working with rumour, travellers' tales and folklore. Some of these tales may even go back to Pliny or Strabo. He was certainly aware of the early Norse explorers, and and Greenland is shown on his map as as the home of the Skraling. I'm not sure I can correctly pronounce it in the Old Norse. That was a term for the Inuit people, so it's thought. But the centre of the map seemed the most familiar to me as I stared at the image on the screen. And then it hit me. Here was a representation of the Irish mythical four cities of the north, demarcated by flowing rivers. The early Irish story, as retold in the Book of Invasions, or the opening sections of the Cathmagatura, tells how the Tuatha Dé Danann came from four great cities of the north. The Tuatha Dé Danann were in the northern islands of the world, studying wisdom and subtle arts. 
These skilled and learned people of crafts are said to have arrived in Ireland, bringing with them four great treasures, the Stone of Kingship, the spear which later belonged to Lou, the Sword of Nurda, and the Douglas Cauldron. Now, before you decide that I'm poking up a particularly fanciful and delusional tree, bear with me. I am not suggesting that the mythical progenitors of the Irish came from the Arctic. No, it was the representation of this quartered circle pattern that really caught my attention. The image of a land, or, or more usually a hill, divided by flowing streams, turns up again in other Irish stories. The image is always associated with an otherworld character or location. For example, Mither's tree-girt home on Brilay is said to have five streams flowing from a central point, as is the allegorical vision of the hill that Cormac experiences in his otherworld visit. Now, in both these cases, there are five streams rather than four. But the streams may have come to symbolise poetic forms. The iconography is definitely similar. But back to Mercator's map. It gets better. A friend and regular correspondent of Mercator was the Englishman known as Dr John Dee. Now, you may have heard of him too. He had something of a reputation at the court of Elizabeth I. He was a mathematician, an astronomer, an alchemist, astrologer and an occultist. At this time, astrology and alchemy were very much included in the sciences. After all, Isaac Newton was a practising alchemist. Occultism was also perfectly respectable as long as you were reasonably well-off and male. But Shinsuke Lella, that's another story. Dr. D was certainly respectable. He was an advisor to Elizabeth herself, and like any courtier of the time, he was keen to please her. The hot political issue of the period involved the power of the Spanish and its perceived threat to the British monarchy. The English had certainly lucked out in the face of Medina Sidonia's armada of ships in 1588. Poor weather and even the prevalence of shipworm in the Spanish vessels may have had, in fact, more impact than the English fleet. But, however, after such a near miss, the English court felt the need to crow a bit and to encourage their reputation as major players both by land and by sea. Now, the Spanish, among other countries, had also gained something of a head start in New World colonisation. So, privateers and slave traders like Francis Drake and John Hawkins were rebranded as naval heroes and world explorers. The land grab race for new territory was underway. As I mentioned earlier, John Dee was a good friend of Gerardus Mercator, and they kept in touch sharing ideas. Dee was extremely interested in Mercator's map of the north of the world. It caught his eye just like it did mine, but not for the same reason. John Dee spun his own twist on the territory. He said that it was already English land. It had long ago, before even the Saxons came to England, been explored and conquered by King Arthur. Well, here is an excerpt from a correspondence between Dee and Mercator in around 1577, when Dee was trying to persuade Mercator to reform, well, that's Dee's words, his map. He says something like, that all these northern isles are lawfully appropriated to the crown of the British Empire. Yes, he's the first person to use the term British Empire. And the terrible adventures and loss of the British people and other of King Arthur, his subjects perishing about the first discovery thereof. So he also says that 
the placing of colonies in the same isles and regions was made by the same King Arthur. As a genuine historical character, I'm afraid there is virtually no evidence that Arthur or anyone like him ever existed. There's a book written by historian Guy Hulstall called Worlds of Arthur, Facts and Fictions of the Dark Ages, which sets out all the available evidence or, in fact, lack of evidence. I highly recommend it. Yet Arthur does exist. He and his exploits are very important in the worlds of oral and literary story and mythology. And Arthur's story, well, they just kept growing. He and some of his companions could be encountered in the Welsh Mabinogion. Geoffrey of Monmouth gave him star status. And the matter of Britain became a favourite subject for the French poets. Eventually, he seemed to be engaging in European battles and he even got to Rome. But in no well-known story, at least, does he make it to the North Pole. But while I think of it, going back to the Welsh stories, there is something interesting. In the Pridae Anovan, excuse my pronunciation, Arthur does invade the other world and comes back with treasures. Now that might be relevant, especially as one of the names of the place is translated as the Four Peaked Fortress. However, I must admit I had never come across a story suggesting an attempt to conquer the North Pole. And then I discovered something. Maybe John Dee wasn't just jumping on the bandwagon. In John Dee, King Arthur and the Conquest of the Arctic, a paper by Thomas Green, published in the journal Heroic Age, I came across this information. Thomas Green has suggested that, in fact, the story came from Mercator himself. The cartographer told Dee that he'd come across a story of Arthur's northern exploits in a document by a medieval Dutch traveller. Now, I'm going to try his name. Jacobus Knoinen. I may be mangling the pronunciation. But it doesn't stop there. Apparently, Knoinen himself derived his information from an earlier text known as the Gestae Arturi, a lost text even then. Well, anyway, Dr. D took his claims to Elizabeth's chief minister, Burley, William Cecil, but he wasn't impressed. And that was the end of it. But there is still one ongoing mystery. The map of the North Pole clearly caught Dr. D's eye, as it did mine. So, where did Mercator find the pattern of land masses cut by flowing rivers emanating from a central peak at the North Pole? What informed this idea? Gerardus Mercator offers one more clue. It seems that his plan of the North Pole and the surrounding area had been gathered from personal traveller's tales of a Franciscan monk from Oxford. Now, he'd written the book too. It's a lost book, Inventio Fortunata, which was probably dated to around 1360, and he claimed to have been to the North Pole himself and seen with his own eyes the giant black rock, the whirlpool, and the land separated by four rivers. Mercator did not name this monk, but research has identified the most likely candidate, a monk known only as Hugh of Ireland. A Norfolk Benedictine included him in a list of authors and mentioned that his only known writing concerned this journey, perhaps to Greenland. So why should this Irish, admittedly well-travelled monk, tell of a journey to the North Pole? Perhaps he was just trying to impress his brother monks. And yet, maybe 
he was just recalling the ancient stories of his homeland. His description of the North Pole has that dreamlike quality of a typical Imrov, a monk's tale indeed. And he may have also included reminiscences of those familiar old pre-Christian tales of his own long-ago islands of the North with their learned teachers, their wondrous treasures and from where his own ancestors might have set out for their journey to the land of Ireland. It's only a speculation, of course, but it does have a certain intrinsic solidity about it. And there is something else. It is representational of the way that motives from early Irish stories do appear unexpectedly in other bodies of work separated from their sources, but still surprisingly intact and recognisable. Here's just a few examples. The medieval masterpiece Gwain and the Green Knight owes more than a nod to Fled Brickram. And under the pens of Tudor writers, including Shakespeare, the wild and wonderful Irish otherworld hero ancestors and guides devolve into cute and tricksy, or dire and baleful beings best left alone. Just think of a Midsummer Night's Dream, for instance. In an 18th century example, the 15th century literary tale of Fergus MacLager morphs into Swift's admittedly very clever satire, Gulliver's Travels. So maybe it is not impossible that the first imagined mappings of the Arctic might owe a debt of gratitude to the account of the coming of the Tue de Dallon to Ireland. Let me know what you think. Thank you for listening. Remember, on www.storyarchaeology.com, you will be able to access the whole archive of Story Archaeology podcasts. You can also explore a wide selection of my audio and video stories for children, as well as a range of project and support materials for schools. Also, Discover information on a number of international arts events and competitions with which Story Archaeology is closely linked. There will be another Stories in the Landscape conversation along soon.